0: Go ahead, and open your <clears throat> go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. That is Mark 12, 13 through 17. And we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and this morning we come to a text where Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, and their question has to do with whether or not taxes should be paid to Caesar. Uh, in our text this morning... A group of men approach Jesus, and they come to him with bad motives. Uh, They've come to try and trip him up in his words. They've come to try and trap him. Um, Really what they're doing is they're continuing the attack on Jesus that began at the end of chapter 11. Um, They've come to try and discredit the Lord Jesus and find grounds to have him executed. Uh, And in our passage, uh, they do so by asking Jesus a question about God and government. Just throwing this out there to you on the front, and a lot of people say, like, keep your religion out of government. That's nonsense. Uh, religion is inherently uh, involved in government. We're saying that God is God over all men, including the government, right? So so they asked Jesus a pretty sticky question about God and government, and honestly, it would be a really hard one to answer, uh, especially if someone put it to you right on the spot. Uh, uh, but as always, our Lord knows how to answer his critics, and he does so in a way that leaves them stunned. And by extension, his answer causes us to marvel at the great wisdom of our Lord Jesus. But but this text is, is really the text that lays the foundation uh, for the Christians' understanding of our relationship to civil government. How are we supposed to view government? How are we to interact with government? Here's a fun question. How are Christians to interact and relate to, or rather interact with and relate to, ungodly governments? Wicked rulers. And the answer is basically this. I'll give it to you on the front end. Most of the time, most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, you can submit to the state and still be faithful to God. You can give to the state what belongs to it while still giving to God all that belongs to him. That's, that's, that's essentially the, that's a summary of our text this morning. Um, so, so what I want to do today is pretty simple. I'm going to walk through this text rather quickly. It's a very simple portion of scripture. And I want to show you how our Lord in his wisdom neutralized the hostile question of his enemies. And then I want to consider his answer. Second, I want to consider his answer to them more deeply. Um, I may come back to it next week, um, but I want to consider his, his answer to their question more deeply. Uh, but by the end, I think that we'll see that we truly must give to Caesar That is the government. That's what, By the way, that's what I mean most of the time when I refer to Caesar in this sermon. I'm talking about the government. By the end of this sermon, I think we're going to see that we must give to Caesar what belongs to him, but that we owe God much, much more than we owe to Caesar. As one uh, preacher said, we must give our silver to Caesar, but we must give our souls to God. So with that said, if you would, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God." the things that are God's and they marveled at him this is the word of the Lord let's pray our heavenly father we come before you now and we plead for your mercy please bless us by your spirit this morning and open your word to us challenge us with the word show us our sin show us where we need to repent and show us Christ show us your great love for us reveal to us our obligations both to God and to men, and grant us grace to walk in whatever you command. And grant us hearts, God, that would do so not out of mere moral obligation, but out of love for the Savior, out of love for God. Help us this morning, we pray. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So let's go ahead and dive into our text. Verse 13 And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The text says they sent some Pharisees and Herodians. Um, Now, the last group that Jesus has been speaking with were, uh, we read in chapter 11, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And those three categories make up the Sanhedrin. And you'll remember, or you'll pretend that you remember, uh, the Sanhedrin is the ruling Religious body in Israel. It's the highest religious ruling body in Israel. And Mark tells us then that it was a delegation from the Sanhedrin that sent these Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. And they came to him with bad motives. They came to try and trip him up. They came to try and trap him in his talk, is what the text says. And the word trap here means to ensnare, um, it's, a, it's a word that you would use in Greek to, to describe hunting. Uh, catching a wild animal. So Mark's letting us know these men have come to do violence to Jesus with their words. And real quick, before you think that I've gone liberal, what do you mean words or violence? Yeah, I'm not buying into that. Let me explain what I mean. Luke chapter 20, verse 20 is a parallel account. It says, so they watched him, that is Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They seek to do violence to Jesus with their words because they want Jesus to say something that they can take to Pilate so that he can be arrested. They want to bring Jesus to Pilate on capital charges. These men were not sincere questioners, right? They are murderous men who want Jesus dead. But but something interesting to note is the fact that the group of men in our text, like who they are, what groups are they from? The text says they are from the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, why is that interesting? Uh, You need some historical background to see what's going on here. Um, The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. The Pharisees were ultra-conservative, about as far right as you could go in Israel. Very, very conservative. They hated Roman rule. Uh, they did not associate with Gentiles if they could help it. Though being under Roman rule, sometimes they had to associate with the Gentiles, but they didn't like it. They avoided it when they could. Uh, they believed that Rome had no right to rule over Israel, and the only reason that Rome was there was because of God's judgment on the people for not keeping the law of God. Uh, the, the The Pharisees were conservative in every way that you could be, right? And they were very they were very Jewish, right? Very pro. Israel's freedom, but on the other hand, you have the Herodians. These men were the liberals of their day. They didn't really care about the Jewish religion. Like what I mean by like they, they kind of did, right? Because like you couldn't uh, you couldn't completely disregard the Jewish religion, really, if you're living in Israel. Uh, but they were not devout men. They were not scrupulous about their religion, uh, like the Pharisees were, and they gladly accepted Roman rule. They supported Herod, hence their name, Herodians. Herod was not Jewish, um, and Herod was actually a puppet king of the Roman government, and they pretty much, these Herodians would do whatever they could to line their pockets with Roman money, right? These men would have ordinarily been considered traitors to the nation by the Pharisees. These groups don't like each other very much, and yet with all their differences, they've teamed up on this day, right? And they've teamed up because they have a common enemy, Jesus, The Pharisees hated Jesus because he challenged their unbiblical traditions, and he called them to repent of their self-righteousness. And the Herodians hated Jesus because he called them to repent of their worldliness. And, And with all the messianic fervor around him, he posed something of a threat in their minds to their position of power. So as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening here. And these two groups of godless men found themselves strange bedfellows. Right, they, they were ordinarily enemies, but they found a bond together, right? a, a, a satanic bond together in their opposition and hatred of Jesus Christ. Now, a quick word about this. Know this. Wicked men will always team up to stand against God and his truth. Jesus tells us Satan will not war against Satan, will he? That's foolishness. A house divided cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln did not say that first. Jesus did. A house divided cannot stand. Satan will not fight against himself, but Satan will fight against Christ. And so a quick word for your meditation. Consider this. We ought not, as Christians, we ought not to be surprised when the world contradicts itself in order to oppose the church of Jesus Christ. When people who ordinarily have nothing in common team up together to persecute and silence the people of God, don't be shocked. They've been doing it for a long time. And they did it to Jesus first. And as Jesus tells us, the servant is not greater than the master. If they did it to him, they will do it to us. So don't be shocked when you see the world contradicting itself and making contradictory alliances in order to oppose the people of God. It's going to happen. But another thing to briefly consider in light of this, when the godless are teaming up with believers or seem to be teaming up with us, look out. And this is loosely related. I felt I needed to say this. When the godless, when the unbelievers are teaming up with believers, or at least seem to be on our side, look out. To my, in, in my estimation, there's only two things that are possibly going on. One, either the godless are being graced with common grace in an extra, on an extraordinary level. And so they see that the church is right on something, and they team up with us. That may be the case. Occasionally, that does happen. Or, second option, the church, the believer, is compromised with the world, and usually it's the second one. When you find the world agreeing with you on a host of things, look out. You have probably compromised and are now opposed to Christ. Know that. When the godless find common ground with the church, it usually means that the church has come to oppose Christ in some way. Remember that and be wise in how you walk. Back to our text. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they've come to try and trap Jesus in his words. Verse 14 says, And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. If you know anything about these men, you can hear the hypocrisy in these words, can't you? It's flattery. You can can hear it. These guys hate Jesus. They don't mean a word of what, they've, of what they've just said in this text. They don't mean any of it. What they're trying to do is they're trying to puff Jesus up. They're, they're trying to make Jesus proud. They're trying to puff him up with flattery and get him to stick, stick his chest out a little bit. That's what's going on here. They call him rabbi, right? teacher. Right? This was a, a, a title of great respect from them. And they call him honest. You are true. They tell him, we know that you're going to shoot straight with us, Jesus, because you don't lie. And they say, you don't care about anyone's opinion, right? You're not a respecter of persons. You're not swayed by the opinions or status of men. They say, Jesus, we know that you won't shy away from the truth. And they say that Jesus is a true teacher, that Jesus truly teaches the way of God, that That is, Jesus teaches the way that God would have all men to live, that Jesus truly and accurately reveals God and his will to men. These men are flattering him. They don't mean a word of this. They're trying to butter him up so that they can trap him. But the weird thing, right, that we read this text as Christians, the weird thing is they're telling the truth about Jesus. It's weird. They're telling the truth, but they're still breaking the ninth commandment they're being dishonest. They don't actually think these things. Right? But what they're saying is actually true. It's kind of a strange thing for us to read. Jesus Jesus is honest. He is the great rabbi. He is the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus is true. More than that, he is the truth. Jesus is no respecter of persons. Jesus does truly teach the way of God. Jesus is all of these things and more. But what What the Pharisees and Herodians didn't count on is that Jesus is not proud. He could not be tempted to be puffed up with pride because he is not a sinner. Now, this would have probably worked on me. (laughs) This would have worked on some of you, too. We tend to love the praise of men. We tend to love when people say good things about us. Why? Because we're often vain and proud. But not Jesus. Jesus. Jesus saw right through their flattery, as verse 15 tells us. He knew their hypocrisy. But what they're trying to do here, just to let you know, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to get Jesus to let his guard down. Right? They're going on and on about how honest and truthful and bold and uncompromising that our Lord is. They're going on about how he doesn't care what people think, and he's going to always teach what God says, even if people don't like it. And what they're doing is they're setting the bait for their trap. They're trying to get Jesus to let his guard down so that they can then spring a question on him and say, all right, honest teacher who doesn't care what anyone thinks, answer us straightforwardly. They're setting the bait so that they can try to paint him, or rather force him into a corner. They, they, at least that's what they think that they're going to do to him by flattering him. And that now brings us to the question itself, the, the trap that they laid for Jesus. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now they say, is it lawful? Well, clearly it's, it's the law. Caesar passed the law. They're talking about divine law here. What does God have to say about this? What they're asking Jesus is, is God okay with us paying taxes to Caesar? What would God have us do here? So this is a theology question that has to do with the relationship of God's people to the state. Now, to understand the depth and difficulty of this question, right, because most of us would say, what do you mean, like, should you pay taxes to Caesar? What's the problem? Right, to understand the depth of this question, we need to know some history. Uh, First, the Pharisees and Herodians are referring to the poll tax. Um, That is the census tax. And the census tax is, is a tax that Rome enforced on everyone in the empire. This tax was one denarius per person. That is one small silver coin. Um, you could actually Google it. It's called the tribute penny is what it's historically come to be known as. It's one small silver coin, one day's labor worth of money, and everyone in the empire had to pay it once a year. Now, clearly, the problem with the tax was not about money. Wouldn't you think it was awesome if your taxes was just one day's labor a year? Wouldn't that be great? Um, I mean, they had to pay more taxes than that, but it wasn't the amount that bothered them. It was, it was religious things that bothered them about this tax. First, the coin had an image of Caesar on it. And around the image were the words, it's in abbreviated Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The coin had a blasphemous title on it. The coin said that Caesar Tiberius' father was a god. And also that Tiberius was a god, the son of God. And on the back of the coin was an image of the Roman goddess of peace, Pax. And around her were the words Pontifex Maximus, that is high priest. And if that phrase Pontifex Maximus sounds familiar, it's because it's one of the titles of the Pope. He's a blasphemer. But again, high priest is written on the back. So this coin had blasphemy and idolatry all over it. And many of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, would not even carry this coin. But they had to use it when they paid this tax. Rome demanded this particular coin. It was standard. Right? So in light of all that, many Jews felt that paying the poll tax was a form of idolatry because you had to handle the denarius with all of its blasphemous titles and images on it. But a second problem is this. And it was the implied meaning of the poll tax. And this might be the bigger problem for most Jews back then. This tax was not a tax on income. It wasn't a tax on goods or services or anything like that. It was simply a tax for the pleasure of living in the empire. That's all it was. And and what it basically declared, what, what, what this tax declared, was that the citizens of the empire, just for being citizens of the empire, belonged to Caesar. They were owned by him in some sense. And so he could tax them just for being there. And so... Nearly all Jews resented this. They believed that it was blas- a blasphemous tax. Why is that? What's God say in the Old Testament? You are my possession. You are my people, is what God says of Israel. So a lot of Jews see this census tax and they say, we're God's people, not Caesar's. And so many believe that paying the tax was participating in and agreeing with Caesar's statement that they, as a people, were Owned by him. Right? And, and knowing that this, is, that this is the sentiment of the day amongst the Jews regarding this tax, the Pharisees and Herodians ask Jesus, Is it lawful to pay the tax? This is let's give the devil his due. This was a smart question. This was a smart question for them. It's a sticky question. And this seems to put Jesus in a tough position. Let me explain. First, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, Then as we read in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, they're going straight to Pilate and they're going to tell him Jesus is inciting rebellion against Rome. And Pilate would no doubt have seen this as an act of sedition and would have had Jesus put to death. Rome was fairly tolerant with Israel's religious stuff, but they handled uh, sedition with steel. They did not play with that stuff. They did not mess around with insurrection. They did not mess around with rebellion. So if he says, no, don't pay the tax, they're going to go tell Pilate what he said, and then he's going to be put to death. But second, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, well, then your average citizen of Israel is going to hate Jesus now. And they're going to say, well, he's okay with blasphemy. He's okay with Rome. He must be a supporter of Caesar. And the only reason, as we read at the end of chapter 11, the only reason that the, I'm sorry, at the end of the parable that we read last week, The only reason that the Sanhedrin has not seized Jesus and arrested him is because they feared the people. Because Jesus was still somewhat popular. But if the people don't like Jesus anymore, then they're free to do what they want and have him killed. They could arrest him. And if the people don't care, then they're going to get away with it. So Jesus seems to be in a tough spot here. The Pharisees and Herodians seem to have pitted God against government. They seem to have made... The, the answer, an either-or question. So how will Jesus answer them? Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Jesus sees through their flattering words. He, he knows that they hate him. He's not falling for it. And he can also see, I, I want to draw your attention to this, he can see the satanic influence that works behind them. Where do I get that from? He says, Why put me to the test? This is the same kind of language that our Lord used in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. This is the same kind of language. So behind this question, behind the opposition of these wicked men, stands the devil. And that's really who stands behind all opposition to Christ. We can say this, the spirit of Antichrist is behind all opposition to Christ. Satan himself is behind all opposition to Christ. These men are controlled by the malice of Satan. They hate Jesus because, as Jesus said in John's Gospel, they are of their father, the devil. And the same is true for all men who oppose Christ and his truth, even to this day. Those who oppose Christ are sons of Satan, doomed to damnation unless they repent and turn to Christ in faith. That's what these men are. He says, why do you put me to the test? But our Lord continues to answer. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Verse 16, and they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesars. Now, Jesus doesn't have a coin on him. And, and this is kind of funny. He doesn't have the coin, but someone among them does. Right? So just think about this for a moment. Jesus does not have the blasphemous coin on his person, but they do. And this might be recorded for us because of some important implications. Um, you, You see, to use the currency of a government is to, at least in practice, admit that that government is actually sovereign over you. To use the money of Caesar implies that you have accepted the rule of Caesar as at least somewhat legitimate. You're using his money. You must think he's a ruler. So Jesus is already pointing out some of the hypocrisy of the questioners. They don't seem to have as big of a problem with the rule of Caesar as they say they do because they have his money in their pocket. But regardless, maybe maybe I'm reading too much into that. I I, I could say that's possible. But regardless, they, they bring the coin to Jesus, and he asks them a question. He says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? He asks, whose image and name is on this coin? Clearly, it's Caesar's name, title, and image on the coin. And that means that the coin belongs to him. And if the coin belongs to him, then he can ask for it back, right? If it's his, he can ask for it back. If it's his coin, if it's his image and his name, then surely he has the authority to tax it, doesn't he? And so Jesus continues in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. This is a brilliant answer from our Lord Jesus. He tells them that the coin belongs to Caesar. It has his image on it. It has his name on it. And so it is to be given to Caesar whenever Caesar asks for it. If he taxes you, give it to him. And the word Jesus uses here, I I think is important for our understanding. He says, render to Caesar. Now in verse 15, They asked him, should we give taxes to Caesar? Jesus uses a different word in the Greek here. He says, render. And render does not mean give. It means pay what is owed. He says, pay what is due. Render is the language of debt payment in the original here. Jesus tells them that taxes to Caesar are actually owed to Caesar. That is, Caesar has... We don't like this as Americans, but let's hear it. Caesar has a right to tax those under his authority. And so they are to pay Caesar the tax that is owed to him. It's his coin, his image, his name, and he has a right to tax the people of the empire. So they are to give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. But that's not all that he says. He says, and render to God the things that are God's. Do you see what Jesus has done? Like it's a little bit of a play on words, honestly, but it is theologically weighty and it's a brilliant answer from Christ. He has just spoken of the image and name on Caesar's coin. And then he says that the object with Caesar's image and name belongs to Caesar. And what do we know about human beings? We've been made in the image of God. All men and women are made in the image of God. God. If you think I'm stretching that, you should know this. Mark actually uses the same language in verse 16 that is used in the Greek Old Testament at Genesis 1.26. Same exact language. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He's making an allusion to Genesis 1.26. Do you see what our Lord has done here? Man is the image and likeness of God. God's image and likeness is on man. Not to mention those of us who have been redeemed through Christ. We have his name put on us in baptism. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's another sermon for another time. But just like Caesar's image is on the coin, God's image and likeness is on man. And if the coin with Caesar's image belongs to Caesar, then certainly the people made in God's image, who have his image stamped on them, Surely then they belong to God. Jesus is telling them that since they are made in the image of God, they are to render. That is, they are to give God his due. They are to give to God what belongs to him. They are to give themselves entirely to God. As those made in the image of God, we are to give everything that we are, everything that we have, everything belongs to God. There is not one facet of us as human beings that does not have God's image on it in our entirety. We were made in his image and likeness, and so we are to give the entirety of ourselves to him. It is his due as our king. It is what we owe him. So again, to summarize, Jesus is saying here, give your silver to Caesar, but give your soul to God. Jesus has masterfully answered their question. He's answered it so well that verse 12 says they marveled at him. They went silent for the moment. They did not imagine that Jesus would give such a good answer, such a thorough answer, an answer that effectively neutralized the threat and their question. You see, Jesus has affirmed that Caesar's tax should be paid, but that does not mean that God should go ignored. So what we see here is that Jesus is neither a seditionist nor an apostate. Jesus has said that Caesar has his rights, but God also has his rights. And what is owed to God, namely the whole person, is greater than what is owed to Caesar. And so Jesus is neither a shill for Caesar nor one who doesn't take God seriously. What Jesus has said here in his answer is that ordinarily you can submit to the state and still be faithful to God. Jesus has declared that Caesar should be given money, but God should be given the whole life. And this is the right answer. This is the divine answer from the Son of God. And what a glorious thing it is to see the wisdom of our Lord Jesus here. Now, having walked through this text, ordinarily I'd be done. And you would say, man, that was a short sermon. Guess again. Not today. Not today. Uh, I want to take some time now and think through the implications of Christ's words in verse 17. Jesus' words in verse 17 lay the foundation for the Christian's relationship to government. Jesus tells us that we are to be good citizens. He tells us that there are things that we actually owe to Caesar. He tells us that there are things that we actually owe to the government. But he also tells us here that our highest allegiance is to Almighty God. Caesar has his rights, and God certainly has his too. And our debt to God is much greater than our debt to Caesar. We may owe something to Caesar, but he does not own us like God does. While we must have some allegiance to Caesar, our highest allegiance is always to God. And so in light of that principle, please turn to Romans chapter 13. Turn there, it's not going to be on the screen. Turn there, Romans 13. I want us to consider a very relevant issue for us in our day, of political turmoil, what I believe is government overreach, and impending tyranny. Uh, What should our attitude be toward the state? Firstly, we must recognize that our Lord teaches us that there are some things that are owed to Caesar. And we see the Apostle Paul flesh this out for us further in Romans chapter 13. Let me read that to you. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Let me read that again. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. We owe Caesar some things. Jesus said it. Paul says it again. But what are they? From this text and some others, I think there are five things that we owe to Caesar. First, we owe Caesar obedience. We owe Caesar obedience. Romans 13 tells us that we are to be subject to the government. We are not to totally reject the authority of the state. We must be in subjection to the state and I, I know, listen, I know you guys, and I know me. Most of us don't like this. As I was talking with Pastor Steve on Friday, I have a hard enough time gladly submitting to God who gave his son up for me to save my soul, let alone a government that I am convinced does not give a rip about me. And yet we owe Caesar our obedience. Paul reminds us at the beginning of Romans 13, verse 1, That the government, even a pagan one like Rome, let's remember the context here. Even a pagan government has been given authority by who? By God. By God. And since we, this is how the fifth commandment works for all of us, isn't it? Regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, we respect authority that is over us. Why? Because ultimately we respect God. And God has placed those people and institutions in authority over us. So since we respect God's sovereignty, we are to respect and obey the state. We owe Caesar our obedience. Let me put it to you this way. Maybe this is a safe way to say it. We owe Caesar as much obedience as we can give. As as much obedience as we can lawfully give. We give it. More on that later. Hear me on this. God has been beating me with this text, by the way, this entire week. Many of you know me and, and how I tend to lean politically. I don't like the government. Most of you don't either, Dave, <laughs> Stephen. Sincerely, your, 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 your elders and, and elder candidate, are, this is something we all wrestle with. We owe as much obedience as we can give, hear me, even if you think a law is stupid. I'm not saying unjust, I'm not saying contradicts the law of God, but you think a law is stupid, you still ought to obey it. Again, we can, we can ask the question later about the legitimate sphere of authority that God has given to Caesar, and that is a long conversation to have. But if it's in his realm of authority, even if we think it's a stupid law, we should still obey. An example, speed limits. I think most speed limits are stupid. I'm serious. I think most of them are, not all of them. Go 25 in a kid's zone. That makes sense. Don't kill children with your vehicle. 23, why is there a speed limit on 23? I don't know. Anyway, but even a law that you think is stupid should be obeyed. Even a law you think is unnecessary. We are to obey as much as we can. Our default setting as Christians is to obey the government in every way that we can. As long as it doesn't conflict with our allegiance to God. We owe Caesar our obedience. The tax is clear. Second, we owe Caesar taxes. Jesus and Paul are both very clear. We owe our taxes. Pay to each one what is owed, says the apostle. And he says taxes. You only owe taxes to Caesar. Pay what you owe, even if they're exorbitant. How do I I know that? Because were. at times, Rome's were, and, and Jesus says pay them. Paul says pay them. Even if they're being used for things that we find abhorrent, we should pay them. Where do you get that? Well, Caesar uses the tax money to build temples for his own worship, for emperor worship. And Paul and Jesus say, pay your taxes. We are to render to Caesar what belongs to him, and it is his God-given right to demand taxes, like it or lump it. He may abuse this right, as our government does. Our government, No government should ask for more than God asks for. God says 10%, 10% men have no right to more. He may abuse this right, but we are still to pay them. Third, we owe Caesar respect and honor. We really don't like this. You want to know how I know? Most of us in this room would join in with a let's go Brandon chant. We don't like to show Caesar respect. Verse 7 says we are to pay respect to whom respect is owed. We are to respect those in positions of authority over us. Now, please hear me. Don't misunderstand me. We are not to lie and pretend that our rulers are great. We're going to get into that in a minute. We are commanded by God to call sin, sin. We are commanded by God to call wickedness what it is. We are commanded to expose the lawless deeds of our government and call our rulers to accept the law of God, repent, and turn to Jesus Christ. But listen, we are not to disrespect those in authority over us, no matter how much we don't like them, no matter how incompetent, not just that we think they are, but that they actually are. Let me give you an example. It is no sin to say that most of our senators, house reps, governors, justices, judges, police officers, whatever, are wicked. Because they are. That is no sin to say that. It is no sin to denounce the abuses and overreaches of Caesar. It's no sin to declare that apart from repentance and faith, they are facing an eternity of the wrath of God in hell because God hates them as they currently sit. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the truth. That is no sin, and we should speak it. But to mock the looks or disabilities or mental capacities of our rulers is evil. To call names is disrespectful. Hear me. Call a man incompetent or foolish if it's true, but don't insult him. We are to tell the truth. We are to call for repentance and reform, but we are also to show respect to those in authority over us. I'm preaching to myself. Many of you are kind of looking at me and you're smirking because we've had conversations. And listen, I don't just mean disrespect to their face or disrespect publicly, but even privately to your family members and friends. We are to still show respect. Just as it would be a sin for a woman to speak ill and disrespect her husband to her best friend behind her husband's back, it is a sin for us to mock Caesar behind his back. We are to show respect. Moving to a different text, First Timothy chapter two, verses one through four. Let me read this to you. This is another thing we owe Caesar. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does Paul tell Timothy? In this text, he says, we owe Caesar our prayers. Not praying to him, that's blasphemy. That's idolatry. But we owe him that we would pray for him. We owe that to the state. We are to pray for the salvation of our governors. We are to pray that they would govern well and justly. We are to pray that they would come to know Christ. We are to pay for, pray for peace in our land. We are to pray for the prosperity of our nation. We are to pray, also this, that the wickedness of our wicked rulers would be thwarted by God so that his church can live in peace. But I hope you see that we are to pray. It's commanded of us to pray for our rulers. And that means that under God, by his command, we owe it to them since he commands it. We owe it to them to pray for them. But let's be honest, most of us don't. Or or this, I, I, I know some of you are sitting there going, no, I pray for the government. I'm not just talking about the imprecatory Psalms. God, strike my enemies, right? Those Psalms, pray them. I'm serious, pray them. Pray them. But don't just pray those. Pray for the things that Paul tells Timothy to pray for. God demands it, and so we owe Caesar our prayers. Fifth, we owe Caesar our prophetic voice. Some of us haven't thought about this much. We owe Caesar our prophetic voice. We see this all over the book of Acts as the apostles preach the gospel to those in positions of authority. They call for faith and repentance. We see this in John the Baptist, who called Herod to repentance and was killed for it. We see this in the Apostle Paul, who made his appeal to Caesar. Why? So that he might preach the gospel to Caesar and his household. We see this in the Old Testament prophets, who often spoke to the civil magistrates, that is, the kings of Israel, and called them to turn back to the Lord. So the same applies to the church today. We are to preach the gospel to the whole world, and that includes our rulers. We are to speak to the state. Hear me, please. We are to speak to the state and call it to govern us according to the word of God. Remember, church and state are separate, and that's good. That's good. We're Baptists, right? Yes, that's good. Right? God has given spheres of authority. Read In the Old Testament, I forget the name of the king. You can read about it. I believe it's in Second Chronicles. A king decides, I'm going to go and offer incense to the Lord in his temple. And God struck him with leprosy. Because no, the church and the state are separate. And the civil magistrate cannot take unto himself authority that belongs only to the elders of the church. Church and state are separate. But the state is not separate from God. Church and state are separate, but not state and God. Where do I get that? Romans 13.1 tells us that Caesar gets his authority from God. (laughs) He gets his authority from God. So then what does that mean? You are subject to the one who gave you the authority because the one who gave you the authority is over you. That's how he gave you the authority because he has more than you do. So the government is subject to God who established it. Romans 13.3 says that the state exists to do what? Punish evil and promote good. Let me ask you this, who gets to define that? Do sinful, wicked men get to decide what good and evil is? Nonsense. God's already revealed what good and evil is in his law. So then, the state is required by God to punish according to the law of God and to encourage good behavior as God defines it in the law of God. The state does not have the right to rule contrary to God's word. The state may be separated from the church, but it is not separated from God. The state is obligated to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and the rule of Christ according to his commands. I know I could get real post-millennial here if I wanted to, but Psalm 2 says the nations belong to Christ. The nations will accept Christ. The state can acknowledge Christ or it can be torn down. Because the state may disobey Christ, but it does not have the right to do it legitimately. It's his. The whole world is his. And it is, in light of that, our responsibility. We owe it to our government to remind them of these things. Do we not? We owe it to them. When Caesar oversteps his God-given authority, we are to call it out and call the government to repent. When the state passes immoral laws, applauding sodomy and encouraging young women to mutilate their genitals, we are to call the state to repent. When the state praises wickedness, we are to call it to repent. We are to remind the state that they are under God. And listen, we owe this to our government out of love. Oh, please, I'm not the best at this. We owe it out of love. What do I mean out of love? Because God is going to judge every single person in authority for how they ruled. And he will damn all those who ruled unjustly unless they repent and turn to his son. So if we love those who govern us, if we love our neighbors, we will care enough about their soul to tell them God's going to judge you for what you've done. We should be writing letters to our state reps. We should be writing letters to our governors. We should be writing to our senators. We should be writing to our, we should, we should be contacting them. Portsmouth City Council, if they do something wicked, as they have, we should be down there calling them to repent. Why? Because we owe it to them. Because they will be damned if they don't repent and turn to Christ. And if we love our neighbors, we will warn them. We often don't think about our our governing authorities as our neighbors, do we? But if we love them, we owe them our prophetic voice. So we owe our voice to Caesar. We owe much to Caesar. I'm still not done. Buckle up. We owe much to Caesar, and it's not always easy. Fallen sinners do not like to submit to authority very often. But while we owe very much to Caesar, our obedience to him is not absolute. It is not unlimited. Please hear me. To quote R.C. Sproul, I believe he said, We are to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But not everything that Caesar says belongs to him actually does. That's wise. That's wise. God determines what belongs to the government. Our obedience is absolute and unlimited to God alone. For he alone is the true king. Our Lord Jesus alone. By the way, this is a political title, by the way. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Our religion is inherently political if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. (laughs) You ever thought about that? If God is king, Caesar is not. Caesar is a lesser king. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. So in light of that, since we are to render to God what belongs to God, and since our highest allegiance is to him, since Christ is the true king, we must now turn to consider when we must disobey the state, because we owe much to Caesar, but not everything. Some of this is very simple. We must disobey the state when, one, the state commands what God forbids, or two, the state forbids what God commands. This is pretty straightforward. There's not really any disagreement among serious Christians on this issue. If the government commands us to disobey God in any way whatsoever, whether by commission or omission, we must disobey the government. If God says do it and Caesar says don't do it, you, you do it. If God says, don't do it, and Caesar says, do it, then you don't do it. We obey God. This is the heritage of the church. Our allegiance is to the Lord. So if the state attempts to make us disobey the Lord, then we must disobey the state instead. Instead, it's very simple. We read this explicitly in Acts chapter 5. The apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. They had been told by the governing authorities, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And then when they were arrested, Peter says this, Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. It's that simple. So when any authority makes a law that contradicts what God has said, we disobey. And we do so, why? Because we have to render to God what belongs to God. And God gets us. Caesar gets qualified obedience. God gets unqualified obedience. But what about murkier issues? Here's where it gets fun. What about where it's not so clear? Caesar's not telling you to abort your child, right? Issues are murkier. It's not so black and white. What do you do whenever the question of spheres of authority come in? What does Caesar actually have a right, according to God, to command of you? Spheres of authority come into question. What do we do when Caesar commands, hear me, when Caesar commands something that is not necessarily sinful, but it might lead, maybe not certainly, but it might lead to our inability to obey God in the future? What do we do then? What do we do when Caesar seems to be taking away a right that God has given to us as human beings? Again, it appears that way. What do we do when Caesar oversteps his bounds and encroaches on another government that God has established, like the family or church? Some examples to consider briefly. If the state says that church services cannot be any longer than one hour, do we obey? They're not telling us we can't meet. They're not telling us what we can do when we gather. They're just telling us you can only meet for an hour. Would you, do we obey that as Christians? Todd's shaking his head no. And he's right. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a second. But you see how that's a little bit of a gray thing. They're not telling us to sin. They're just, they're, they've made a law. Is, is, are they within their right to, to, to make that law? The state says that the church has to make some kind of financial decision that's not inherently sinful. Must we obey? The state says that the church uh, must permit our buildings to be used by the government for some reason, Monday through Saturday. Must we obey? The state says that the church must wear masks or we cannot assemble. Must we obey? I personally think the question to, to the church, the answers to the church questions are pretty easy. The elders have the highest authority over the church, not Caesar's. So those things are subject to the elders of the church. I think that's fairly simple. Caesar does not have a right to dictate anything that the church does as a church. That's where I'm at with it. But what about in the home? right? How much authority does Caesar have in the home? Again, these are all murky, tough questions. If the government makes homeschooling illegal, do you have to, according to God, send your children to public school? Is it a sin to send your kids to public school? Maybe, maybe not. If the government tells you that you must give up your guns, do you have to obey? If the government tells you uh, to wear a red shirt on Tuesdays, do you have to obey? It's not a sin to wear a red shirt on Tuesdays. These questions are tough. They are. Where does the legitimate God-given authority of Caesar end? When are we permitted to disobey? In these kinds of areas. They're gray. I hate gray. I'm a very black and white kind of guy. This stuff makes me uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And I certainly have my own thoughts on this subject. On all these questions, I have my own answers. And I think that they're pretty well informed by Scripture. But I want to say this to you. I recognize that I am not infallible. And there are many godly, well-studied men who disagree with my conclusions on some of these things. Even Pastor Stephen. We talked about some of them on Friday. And we locked horns. I won't tell you who won. No one won. I also recognize that my job is to preach the word and not my opinions on subject or on areas that are I'm subject to be in error on because they're so difficult. And also I'm not completely settled in my own mind on some of these issues. So let me say this. Many Christians will have different answers. But there are clear principles that each one of us have to apply to these difficult situations. And I'm going to give them to you now and I think these are really relevant for us in the days ahead for us as Christians in this country. First, we must pray. You have to pray. We must pray for wisdom about such issues that are so gray and cloudy. We must pray for God to guide our thinking about Caesar's authority and when we must disobey. We're fools if we don't pray. Not only that, but God's given us a promise in the book of James. Does anyone lack wisdom? Pray. Ask God for it. He'll give you wisdom. Pray. Second, we must study the word Oh, don't sit and try to reason these things out in your own mind using only your mind. You're a sinner. I promise. If you're a contrarian like I am and you take the Bible out, what should I do? I'm just going to think through this. Disobey Caesar every time. I promise. That's probably, that's going to be where I land. Just disobey. No, he's awful. Study the word. You have to look for answers in the word as we pray. And listen. In, in in this studying the word, talk to Christians who know the Bible better than you do. And we must consider, hear me, and this is something you need to think about this, we must consider not just the black and white words of the Bible, but also the implications that come out of those words, and also the presuppositions and principles that lay at the foundation of the things that Scripture says. We must consider those things when studying the word. Third, in these difficult issues, we must never violate our consciences. This is very important. Romans 14, 23 reads, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The Bible tells us that whatever we do that violates our conscience, whatever we cannot do with a clear conscience, whatever does not proceed from faith is certainly sin for that person to do. What does that mean? We must obey our consciences as they are informed by the word of God. We absolutely must. Now, hear me. What if my conscience is wrong? It might be. You might be wrong whenever you follow your conscience. And your conscience may need fixed, but you don't know that yet, do you? And so you must follow your conscience as it is right now and informed by the word, or you are certainly sinning. You must obey your conscience. And even as you follow your scripture-informed conscience on these tough issues, you must continue to study and refine your understanding of these things and repent where you must, where you realize you were wrong, and then continue to strive to obey God according to conscience. Fourth, we must respect one another's consciences. This was our stance with the COVID vaccines and stuff. We respect each other's consciences. We cannot stand in judgment over another where Scripture is not plain. And as Paul instructs us in Romans chapters 14 and 15, we must bear one another, bear with one another. And we must do so recognizing that each servant is accountable to his own master. And each one of us is trying our best to honor the Lord in these difficult situations. Fifth, and lastly, our disobedience. Please hear me. We talked about this in the men's group this morning. Our disobedience, if it must happen, must be according to biblical principles and commands, not mere preference or a disdain for authority. When we disobey, we do so for biblical reasons, not personal ones. Just because you don't like something that the government does does not immediately mean that you are free to disobey. Our reasons must be biblical. They must be because we are convinced that our God calls us to disobey. What a weighty statement that that is, by the way. Caesar, I believe God tells me to defy you. That's weighty. If we disobey, it must be because our allegiance is first to God and we see that it is being challenged by the state. And then we must be prepared in our hearts to suffer the wrath of Caesar because you will be punished when you disobey Caesar. But we do so knowing that our consciences are clear before God and men. But even with all of this lengthy stuff says said, it bears to repeat something. Don't be too focused on when you should disobey. Think about it. But remember, our default setting as Christians is obedience to Caesar. As much as we can. It's just not an unthinking, unquestioning obedience. After all, we must render to God what belongs to God. Brothers and sisters, I may return to this text next week. I know I've only really handled Render to Caesar and a little bit of Render to God. I may come back to this next week and consider uh, what it means to Render to God. But let's end our time together this morning with this concluding thought. Jesus Christ is Lord. (laughs) That's what we gather here to confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. God is the true King reigning through his Son. The world ultimately belongs to our Lord Jesus. And so every man and government must submit themselves to Christ in faith or perish. Every single person, whether a peasant or a king, must render to God what belongs to God. And God demands repentance and faith in his son. No one is autonomous. What do I mean? Everyone has to answer to someone. Everyone has to answer to someone. And all men, even kings, must answer to God for their rebellion against him. And the only hope for us on that day is to to submit ourselves now to the one who suffered and died and was raised in our place for our rebellion and sin against the great authority, God. And the one who did that for us is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of sinners, and he is also the great King of kings and Lord of lords. And all men must confess him in faith or perish. So may God help us each to submit to Christ in faith. And may he teach each of us to render to God what belongs to God. And may he likewise teach our nation. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is so intensely practical. It's not just abstract thoughts. It's not, it, 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 it's real. It's, it's, it, it's right before us. It's concrete stuff. God, I pray that you would help us to submit to your rule. And Really, God, rendering to you means giving to Caesar what belongs to him because you're the one who's commanded it. So, God, I pray that you would teach each one of us that out of love for you, for saving us, and out of respect for you as our creator, that's why we respect those in governing authorities positions over us. Have mercy and teach us to be like Christ who knew perfectly how to render to Caesar and also shows us perfectly how to render to God. Have mercy on us and help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.